Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 20. And they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a, burn, with a fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments. The king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, El Natan, Delia, and Gamaria employed the king not to burn the scroll, but he wouldn't listen to them. And the king commanded Jerhamil, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azriel, and Shalamiah, the son of Abdil, to seize Baruch, the, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. After the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll saying, why have you written in it? The king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. I want you to take your Bible for just a moment if you have it. I want you to think about what's in your hand. And I want you to note something. That you can burn it. And you can ban it. And you can bury it. But it's going to survive. The reason? Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. In this chapter, we're given a picture of a wicked king's attempt to destroy God's word and then the power of God to preserve it. Earlier in the chapter, we looked at the inspiration of the word of God in verses one through four and the proclamation of the word of God in verses five through ten. And then we began to look at the preservation of the word of God from verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. The setting of the chapter is Jerusalem, the year it's 605, 604 B.C. We are in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And God had commanded Jeremiah to write down all the messages he had given to Jeremiah. That is the word of God. And remember, he has been doing this for some 20 years. I've been teaching the Bible for almost 30 years. This was Jeremiah's life work. He says, write it down since the beginning of your ministry. In the message, 
Jeremiah gave God's reason or purpose for writing down the message. Remember, Jeremiah had been banned from the temple and he couldn't go in and he couldn't communicate the message. And so the Lord said, they may have shut you up, but they haven't shut up the word of God. Write down the messages that I'm giving you. And the people needed to know the consequences of sin. The Lord longed for the people to repent. And then we saw the method that God chose to record his word. Jeremiah dictated God's word to his secretary, a man named Baruch. He writes it down on a piece of parchment or scroll. And Jeremiah, like I said, has been banned from the temple. He sends Baruch to read the scroll in the temple in the hearing of the people. He reads the scroll. You'll remember on the national day of fasting and prayer, a day when all of the crowd had gathered and Baruch read it in the hearing of the people. But here's what we don't understand from the chapter. We're not told how the people respond to the message. We do know that the that a man named Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, is influenced by it. He's struck by the words that is being spoken. And he knew that this would sooner or later get back to the king. And so he gathers the leaders, the princes, the leaders of Judah together to hear the word of the Lord. And so Baruch reads it again. And they tremble. But they understand that it needs to be reported to the king. And so they ask whether or not this message came directly from Jeremiah. And Baruch notes that this is word for word what Jeremiah said, and he recorded it with ink. And the leaders show concern for Baruch and Jeremiah's safety. And so they recommended that both Baruch and Jeremiah go into sort of the the Old Testament version of the witness protection program. So. We understand something. There's a reason why they're asking them to hide, because they anticipate how this wicked king is going to respond To Jeremiah's message. You know, it was J.I. Packer who wrote, Only truth can be authoritative. Only an inerrant Bible can be used in the way that God meant the scripture to be used. The Bible is fascinating from a historical standpoint. It's fascinated from a literature standpoint. But the Bible was never meant to simply be read as a fascinating piece of historical Literature, it was meant to be read as God's message to you, to me. And so we begin again in verse 20. It says, and they went to the king and into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishema, the scribe, and all the words in the hearing of the king. Now, under normal circumstances, when you get a message like this and you get a scroll like this and you get a document like this, you would immediately bring it to the king. But they realized that there were some dangers and some issues. And so it says they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishema, almost certainly in an attempt To preserve the document. Imagine you had a message for someone or imagine you wanted to tell someone something about the Bible. And so you decided you were going to get them a Bible for their birthday or you were going to get them a Bible for Christmas or you were going to get them a Bible for Mother's Day or whatever special occasion is taking place. But you knew Can you imagine if you knew that your mother was going to burn the Bible? If you knew your son or your daughter was going to take the gift that you gave it to him and throw it in the fireplace, what would you do? Would would something inside of you just go, I'm so afraid to give this to them because they might just throw it in the trash or in the dumpster. That's exactly what's happening here. Now, remember what I said, in a sense, at this point in history, this document is the living legend, if you will. It is the legacy of Jeremiah, the prophet. It represents the sum and the substance of his life, work and ministry. And so the people who have it, they understand. What's at stake. 
And so in verse 21, it says, so the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishema, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of the princes who stood beside the king. And so he begins reading the document, the same document that we've been reading for the past several months. It says, now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. On the Hebrew calendar, unlike our calendar, it began in March and April. In other words, New Year's was spring. In our calendar, which is based on the Roman calendar, the year begins in January and ends in December. Here, the ninth month is the Jewish calendar month of Kislev. And Kislev is the month that would typically in Jerusalem fall in November or December. And even in Jerusalem in November and December, it's a little bit elevated and the temperatures start to drop and it can become very, very cool, even cold. And so the king has lit a fire. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns. Now, remember, those of you who who were here when we had the scroll of Isaiah, you could see columns of Hebrew text taking place as you go through reading the scroll, column after column after column. And when Jehudi had read three or four columns, then the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. The scribe's knife was... A penknife, if you will, that would have been used to cut the papyri. And then it would have also have been used to sharpen the nubs because they would use a hollow reed in order to write the letters of, of, of the Hebrew alphabet or the, the Hebrew words that they're using. Now, remember, this is King Jehoiakim. This is the king who sent men to Egypt in chapter 26 to bring back God's faithful prophet Uriah so that he could execute him. When you're reading this text, I'm going to suggest you ask a question of the text like I often do. What question do you think I'm going to propose to you? Well, here it is. What makes a person react so violently to the Bible? What is it about this book and this document and its message that when you open it, it provokes and prompts such a response? Have, have you ever opened up your Bible with a friend or a family member and said, hey, this is what the Bible says. And it was as if pure evil came out of their mouth. You Bible thumper. You fill in the blank. I don't need to. You know what's been said. The king knew that the word of God condemned his rebellion, condemned his wickedness, condemned his disobedience. The king knew that the word of God demanded his submission and demanded his obedience. And he hated it. Have you ever read the Bible and it started to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Especially when it was bringing up something that you knew wasn't quite right in your thinking or in your heart or in your life or in your activities. And you'll note that the king got only to three or four columns into the scroll before he decided to cut it up with a knife and cast it into the fire and note until the whole scroll was consumed in the fire on the hearth. One of the reasons why I want to bring this up to you is because he's hearing the message, but does he get through the whole message? How many people do you know who have started with Genesis and then they go to Exodus and Leviticus, they hit the wall. And they know that they can't go any further. And so their whole attitude about the Bible is based on bits and pieces of the Bible. They hear this message of the condemnation of wickedness and judgment, but they never get to the part. There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's mercy. 
There's not just a second chance or a a third chance. Know what the king doesn't do. He doesn't study it. He doesn't consider it. He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't allow the message to sink in. He's offended by it. And he throws it into the fire. We know that the Bible is loved by millions of people. But it's hated by millions of people, isn't it? There are people who, for whatever reason, literally devote themselves to this book. In my life and in my library, I have amassed, would it shock you, 4,000, 5,000 books? There's only one book. That I've ever owned. That I've never been able to exhaust. That no matter how many times I read it. And no matter how many times I study it. And no matter how many times I teach it. There's still something left to learn. 39 books in the Old Testament. 27 in the New. 929 chapters in the Old. 260 chapters in the New. 23,214 verses in the Old. 7,559 verses in the New. 593. 493 words in the Old. Let me put it to you this way. In the 593,493 words in the Old Testament. 181,253 words in the New Testament. Here's my job. It's to teach you every single word in both documents. I know what you're thinking. Well, then you better hurry up. You better get on the stick. Bernard Ram said, whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle or Cicero or Seneca. Hey, I enjoyed Mark Twain, but I never counted the chapters and the words. Do you realize it wasn't until 1250 A.D. that the Bible was divided into chapters? At that time, Cardinal Hugo incorporated chapter divisions into the Latin Bible. His divisions, although convenient, weren't always accurate. But essentially, the same chapter divisions that you have in your Bible are the ones that he came up with. In 1551, Robert Estienne introduced a Greek New Testament with the inclusion of verse divisions. He didn't fix verses for the Old Testament. The first entire English Bible to have divisions, both chapter and verse, was the Geneva Bible in 1560. Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible in pure, in pure words. Do you know what the, old, the longest book in the Bible is? Psalm. You know, on the surface, if you were to ask me, well, what's the oldest or what's the longest book besides Psalm? I would have told you Isaiah because it has 66 chapters. Jeremiah has 52 chapters, but it's longer than the entire book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is longer than 12 other minor prophets. So cut me some slack. Isaiah or Jeremiah has 1,364 verses. Jeremiah has 42,659 words. And by the grace of God, I'm going to try and at least comment on each and every one of them. And look what it says. In verse 24, yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. In other words, they're not afraid. They don't repent and mourn in sackcloth and ashes. The king and some of his officials, they show no sign of fear, no sign of repentance. And this becomes an important point for each and every one of you. When your children spit on this book or walk on this book and throw it to the ground or disregard it as if it's some sort of man-made joke. You know, it's most disturbing to me. 
Muslims treat the Quran with more respect than many so-called Christians treat their Bible. These people, the king and his officials, they make it clear that they don't even for a moment believe that the words of Jeremiah are divine inspiration. They don't believe that the message is true and real. And the only thing that made sense to the king and his officials were to deny its influence. And that's why so many people hate the Bible. And say, why do you love the Bible? What do you care about the Bible? What do you care about what the Bible has to say about marriage? What do you care about what the Bible has to say about creation? What do you care about what the Bible has to say about same-sex marriage? And it seems to be the, the, the hot topic right now, both on my radio program and I keep getting calls from other radio programs. Why does this make a difference? Why do you even care? A person called me even today. And said, what do you care? What does it even matter? There's, they're not hurting anyone and there's no crime being committed. And it never even occurs, even for a moment, to the person that God invented marriage. That God made marriage as a comfort and a convenience so that human beings could have some sort of gracious life. It never occurs to them that sexual immorality is sin and it doesn't have unintended consequences. That sin hurts God and it hurts your neighbor. And for the church, when you're involved in sexual immorality, it isn't just two things that are, that are taking place between consenting adults. The Bible says you being many are one body. You're joined and you're fitted together. And what you do and what you think is the privacy of your own home has a profound effect on everyone. And this is why Paul said, if you join yourself to a harlot, you're not just joining yourself to a harlot. You're joining the entire body of Christ. They deny the message and they deny the influence. And so the king does what many people do. He thinks that if he burns the message, that the message will go away and he won't be accountable for its content. Look what it says in verse 25. Nevertheless, El Natan, Delia, Gamaria implored the king not to burn the scroll but he wouldn't listen to them. The king rejected all the suggestions not to burn the scroll. Just like many people today, they reject the Bible. Hey, take it seriously. I don't want to take it seriously. Well, if you're not going to take it seriously, at least allow other people to take it seriously. No, it's a joke and you're a joke and the Bible's a joke and it, I'm not going to take any of it seriously. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. By the way, the name Jeremiah means, may God have compassion, or God show pity. The King James identifies him as the son of Hamalech. Malach in the Hebrew language is the word for king. And so the King James says the son of Hamalech. And here in our in our uh, translation, it says the king's son. The RSV with the Septuagint translates Hamalech the king rather than treating it as a proper noun. I'm going to suggest to you that this is probably a name. Just like. You know, you might meet a person whose name is Guy King. Just because his name is King doesn't mean he's the king. It's just his name. And this is probably not the real son of this king. Otherwise, this person's completely unknown. Sariah means the Lord has recompensed or paid back. And Shelemiah means the Lord strives or the Lord has striven or ruled. 
And all of what all of these guys have in common is we don't know anything else about them. And this Shelemiah is not the Shelemiah that was mentioned earlier in verse 14. So the king has burned the document and now he orders the immediate arrest of both Baruch and Jeremiah. But the Lord has already led both scribe and prophet to a safe and secure and otherwise unknown location. Point, the Lord supernaturally guided them to a place of preservation and safety. It says in verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, take yet another scroll and write it on it. All the former words which were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Here's the Lord's response to the burning. Let's do it again. Let's write it down again. So Jeremiah reproduces the content of the previous scroll. And it would appear that the arrangement of the book was initially according to the messages that were given. And then partly according to the subject matter. But what it does is it provides us an interesting insight into the composition and the compilation of the book that you're reading. And so for those people who say, you know, a bunch of old white men got together and they decided to put what's in here, what they wanted to put in here, and they decided to exclude what they wanted to exclude. Is that really how it happened? No, that isn't how it happened. The man of God heard from God. And here we understand something that the scribe of God wrote down the matter. In history, people have made a conscious attempt to destroy God's revelation, the Bible, the word of God. But the Bible has shown itself able to weather the storm of burning, of banning, of burying. In spite of the persistent attempts to make the Bible go away, it remains impervious, imperishable impregnable, indissoluble, invincible. Do you know that the Bible is still the best-selling book of all time? Yeah, beating out J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. The Bible has been translated in whole or part into thousands of languages and dialect. It's been printed in billions of copies. Bernard Ram wrote, quote, a thousand times over the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed the inscription cut on the tombstone and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. Valerius Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305 A.D., Attempted to eradicate the scripture. The first edict called for the persecutions of Christians. The edict was marked March 303 A.D. Diocletian ordered the Christian worship services to cease. He ordered Christian places of worship torn down. He ordered the deposition of the officers of the church. And imprisonment for those who persisted in their testimony for Jesus. And destruction of the scriptures by fire. I've told this story before. The generals of Diocletian said, we would love to burn the scriptures. What are they? And Diocletian said, whatever they're willing to die for, burn it. Wayne Jackson in the book Reason and Revelation writes, quote, 
All assemblies of Christians were forbidden and churches were ordered to be torn down. Four different edicts were issued, each excelling the preceding in intensity. One edict ordered the burning of every copy of the Bible. The first instance in Christian history when the scriptures were made an object of attack. B.J. Clark in his book, The Indestructibility of the Bible, Proof of Inspiration, writes, quote, Moreover, after a couple of years of these persecutions, he, that's Diocletian, became so arrogant that he claimed to have exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. He even erected a monument over the ashes of the burned Bibles with the, ex, with the ex, inscription, Extincto Nomine, Christorium, translated, Extinct is the name of the Christians. He also fashioned a medal, and I've seen this medal with my own eyes, with the engraving, the religion, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods restored. Diocletian is dead. And the Bible... Is still loved and still being read. There was a brief respite during the time of Constantine. In 1184, Pope Licinius II excommunicated the Waldenesses, who became the genesis of what would be a future Protestant Reformation. They kept the Bible as the central part of their worship. Pope Innocent III in 1199 AD had the French Bibles burned at Metz and forbade the people to have more. A Catholic synod in Toulouse, France in 1299 forbade the people to possess scriptures. Ferdinand and Isabella in 1474 forbade the people to have Bibles. 10,000 Bibles were burned in Grants in Stiermark on August 8, 1600 by order of Ferdinand II who had become emperor. The Jesuits boasted of burning 60,000 Bibles in a single year in 1637 in Bohemia. Pope Clement II in 1713 condemned Bible reading on the part of Christians. Pope Pius VI did likewise. Pope Julius VII called the Bible societies a in 1816, Pope Gregory XVI on May 6, 1844, said that those favoring Bible societies were guilty of the greatest crime before God and the church. Why? Why do people hate this book so much? Why this kind of cynicism and pessimism and vitriol? Because there are people who reject the Bible as the sole supreme authority concerning faith and doctrine. People will ask you. Why is the Bible so important to you? Why do you take such a significant amount of your life to read it and study it? It's so that you can know it and obey it. In verse 29 it says, And you shall say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned the scroll. Saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and cause man and beast to cease from here? What is the answer to Jehoiakim's question? Well, why did you write that, Jeremiah? Number one, the Lord told me to. Number two, because it's true. It's true. This is what's going to happen. You know that there are people who don't believe that the Bible's true, right? You know that. Why does the Bible say that God created Adam and Eve? It's such an annoying thing. It makes evolution seem so unlikely. Why did God create Adam and Eve? 
Why does God's ideal seem to be between one man and one woman? Why does the Bible seem to indicate such severe penalties for sin? Why does the Bible devote so much time and energy to the subject of redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness? Why is so much of the Bible devoted to prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? Why does the Bible seem to devote so much Energy and time and information warning you that hell is a real place and you don't want to go there under any circumstance and that heaven is a real place. Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and cause man and beast to cease from here? The Masoretic text gives the pronoun, which is normally included in the verb. It it says in in the Hebrew text, you, you. Have burned this scroll. What was the Lord's response to the king's burning of the scroll? The Lord repeats the word of the king. He burns the scroll. And then God himself records accurately and appropriately the very words that come out of the king's mouth. Do you know what the New Testament says? That your words will exonerate you, condemn you, justify you, judge you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the very words that you speak will be the very words that God will use to evaluate you. So what are you saying? I hope you're saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, help me to read the Bible and understand what it says and help me to obey what it says. People have suggested that the word of God wasn't intended to be written, that they're just words written by men. Some have suggested that the word of God doesn't contain all truth. Some have suggested that the Bible is hopelessly difficult and you can never understand it. I admit that it is difficult in places. And I like to think of it as job security. But it was meant to be understood. Don't you think it was meant to be obeyed? Some suggest that the Bible is a dead letter, that it is a divisive book that does more harm than good. That's what happened last week when a when a man showed up at a high school and he said that this wretched book is the source of bullying. Against boys and girls who experience same-sex attraction. That if this book went away, then their problems would go away. In a way, that's true. If there's no standard in order to evaluate behavior, it makes perfect sense that we would want it to go away. Why have you written in it? That the king of Babylon will come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Do you remember what the scroll itself says? Do you remember what Jeremiah? Do you remember how Jeremiah answered the king's question? Rebellion, idolatry, and sin is what's brought this judgment. We've read in Jeremiah's book that simple discipline and education and religion won't change the human heart. We've also read in the scroll that God is willing to give a new heart. And if people will turn from their sin and incorporate a brand new heart, then guess what? You can experience forgiveness when Stephen in the New Testament pointed out to the religious leaders and when he went on record and he said, you know what you've done with all of the prophets that God has sent you each time God sent someone to talk to you about your circumstances. 
Which one of them did you accept and which one didn't you kill? Ooh. And they took up stones. And they killed Stephen. Therefore, it says in verse 30, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, quote, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them. On the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Now think about what the Lord is saying. When you read the words, I will punish him. It's supposed to take your breath away. You're supposed to gasp at this point in the message. And the reason you're supposed to gasp at this point in in the message is, I need to help you. What part of God's prophecy will fail? None. Will burning the scroll of Jeremiah make the prophecies of Jeremiah go away? Will burning the scroll of Jeremiah make the promises of Jeremiah go away? The prophecies won't go away, will they? And the promises won't go away, will they? And the judgment won't go away either. Let me ask you a question. If you managed somehow to gather every single Bible and every single language that has ever been published in every single generation and managed to throw them into a volcanic furnace and, ex- and, and literally wipe out every trace of the Bible everywhere on the planet. Would that make the promises of God and the prophecies of God and the judgment of God go away? Do you realize that you can recreate 95% of the entire Bible just from the literature, the records that the early church fathers wrote to one another? So that even if you manage to burn every single Bible in every single language in every single country, there there would remain in literally millions of books... The entire testimony of God. Here's what the Lord is saying. I gave you a chance to listen. And you didn't listen. The first attempt to pervert the word of God came in the Garden of Eden. King Manasseh of Judah in 697 encouraged rebellion and paganism and infanticide. And then he ordered all of the copies of the law to be burned or buried. And 20 years after his death, his grandson Josiah found the lost book of the law in the temple. And it brought about this great spiritual revival. And this boy, this young man, the servant Jehudi, was the great grandson of the of the person who first read the scroll to Josiah. Look at verse 3 in the chapter. The chapter we're reading, chapter 36. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. But it was not to be. Why have you written this and why have you said this? I've written this and I've said this so that you would have an opportunity to change, to go in a different direction. To have your life be a different life. Every single person that you've ever met who hates the Bible, who rejects the Bible, who despised the Bible, the Bible wasn't written so that they would be condemned. 
You know the most famous passage in all of the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that through him the world might be saved. In chapter 22, verse 17 of Jeremiah. But your eyes and your heart... Are not for anything but covetousness and for the shedding of innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus says Jehovah concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. They shall lament for him saying, ah, my brother or ah, my sister. They shall lament for him saying, ah, Lord or ah, his glory. He shall be buried. With the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. The the testimony, you're going to die and you're not only going to die, you're going to die under the most horrible of circumstances. I wonder if Jehoiakim heard what God said. You're going to die and you're going to die under the most horrible of circumstances. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm the king of Judah. Let's see who flinches first. And of course, Jehoiakim will pay a stiff penalty for his arrogance and his impudence and his wickedness and his defiance. In 598, guess what's going to happen? 598 B.C., he will die. You can look it up in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 5. He will have no one to occupy the throne. Look at verse 30. Jehoiachin or Jeconiah or Coniah in chapter 22, verse 24, his son will quickly succeed him. Do you know how long his son will be the king of Judah? For about 100 days. Three months, 10 days in 597 B.C. You can look again in chapter 22, which we've already studied, or Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 9. Babylon will deport him. He will spend the rest of his life and none of his descendants will rule. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and he gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to him many similar words. E.A. Leslie writes, quote, something new is taking place in this chapter. The spoken word is still supreme. For the prophet is a uniquely gifted person and speaker for God. The importance of the written word, however, has already begun to be evident a century earlier in Judah at the experience of the prophet Isaiah. But here the writing down is intended to retain and conserve the content of the fleeting vocal utterance, giving it both longer influence and wider reach. Moreover, in this significant chapter, we have our clearest Old Testament evidence as to exactly how one of the prophetic books came to be written, a prophet dictating, a scribe writing in a scroll, which created the present book of Jeremiah. And I've told you this before, but that scroll will be taken into Babylon and will be read by Daniel And he will unfold the prophecy and he will understand that the captivity is for a season and that the children of Israel are going to be coming home. And he will weep with joy. In the 1960s, A.Z. Conrad wrote a tribute to the enduring nature of the Bible. He wrote, century follows century. There it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. There it stands. Dynasty follows dynasty. There it stands. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. There it stands. Despised and torn to pieces. There it stands. 
Storms of hate swirl about it. There it stands. Agnostics smile cynically. There it stands. Storms of hate swirl about it. There it stands. Profane punsters caricature it. There it stands. Unbelief abandons it. There it stands. Higher critics deny its inspiration. There it stands. Thunderbolts of wrath smite it. There it stands. An anvil that has been broken a million hammers. There it stands. The flames are kindled about it. There it stands. Radicalism rants and raves against it. There it stands. Fogs of sophistry conceal it temporarily. There it stands. The tooth of time gnaws, but makes no dent in it. There it stands. Infidels predict its abandonment. There it stands. Modernism tries to explain it away. There it stands. Burn it. Bury it. Ban it. And there it stands. You know, the book that you hold in your hand is inspired by God. And preserved by God. And it becomes one of the most remarkable testimonies to its inspiration. Every effort to destroy it. Every effort to discredit it. Every effort to deny it. Has failed. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 89.28. My loving kindness will I keep for him forevermore. My covenant shall stand fast with him. In Psalm 105, verse 8, he has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. In Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God stands forever. Preserved. Indestructible. You can trust it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing book. What an amazing passage. Lord, I pray for each and every person who has to stand in the vicious onslaught of the cynicism, the skepticism, and the unbelief. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have the courage to make our decision not on the basis of what they don't believe, but on the basis of what the Bible actually says about itself. That the word of God stands forever. The word of God is commanded and remembered to a thousand generations. And so again, Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a deep desire to know it, understand it, and obey it. Lord, we know what the Bible is. It's a message of love from you about Jesus. That sin can be forgiven. That hearts can be made new. That heaven can be is a place where we can, in fact, make reservation. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every man and each and every woman who's going through a difficult struggle of doubt. That, Lord, that they would know that they know that they know that the Bible is true and that it can be honored and believed. In Jesus' name, amen.